This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. It's astounding. Time is fleeting. Madness takes its toll. But listen closely. Not for very much longer. I've got to keep control. Well, I think we'd be foolish to try and uh, dispute the producers of the Rocky Horror Picture Show and contend that madness does not take its toll. And I'd quote the playwright Nathaniel Lee when he said, They called me mad, and I called them mad. And damn them, they outvoted me. Anyway, I find myself in the unusual position of having to report on the fact that I just got back from a time warp. Now, I don't really know how it happened, but apparently uh, I misplaced 40 years somewhere along the way. It's there a minute ago. <laughs> yes, Mr. Melinda, it was there just a minute ago. I don't know what to think. One theory that I'm working on is the fact that, um, that I might have been abducted by aliens and spirited away from the Earth at somewhere near the speed of light. Then return just in time to note that everybody else seems to have aged 40 years, but uh, for me, just, I don't know. Six months, six weeks has gone by. But uh, I run this one by Harvard astrophysicists, but apparently that's gone too far even for Avi Loeb, who believes that the Earth, or at least the solar system, has been visited by probes from other worlds. Dr. Loeb, as an aside, has recently claimed that he's found bits of extraterrestrial material on the bottom of the Indian Ocean. And as astronomer Carl Sagan used to say, extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof. And so far, Dr. Loeb probably doesn't have it. Anyway, before I skitter too far into the weeds here, um, I I should come back to Earth and note that, uh, yes, I did, in a manner of speaking, enter a time warp by returning to Southern California to attend my 40th, 40th, medical school reunion, which means, according to the calendar, that, that I graduated in 1983, and, and also that right now it's 2023. I'm pretty sure about the first one, and they tell me the second one's rock solid, so I guess I'm stuck. Or, at any rate, they outvoted me. I must say, I have great affinity for this uh, greatest of peer groups that I have ever been or ever will be associated with. And the amazing thing was just sitting down and talking to those people, it was just as though time had not passed. But luckily, dear listener, a lot of this alleged time that has passed um, has provided some remarkable anecdotes that uh, I hope to share on this program with you from my cohorts. And uh, let me tell you, uh, these are going to be some good stories. 
just to forward promote one, which needs to be told properly by the participant. One of my classmates' husbands, and yes, in this we're going to include spouses. Because anybody that paired up with the crew I'm talking about, well, they're in the club. That's all I got to say. Now, one of my classmates, who I had not seen in many years, uh, turned up and was doing some work overseas. God bless him for doing it. Particularly since, to my surprise, I discovered that he'd been working in Afghanistan. Also, Tajikistan. Also, Kyrgyzstan. Now, I have a certain interest in visiting the stands at some point. I don't think there's any place on earth that's probably less, uh, less familiar to the people that migrated to the New World than that part of Asia. So I'm glad to report I got a new go-to guy describing how safe it is. I was saying like, uh, well, I've heard Tajikistan can be a problem. He goes, no, no, not a problem. You'll be fine. Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan. He stopped short of recommending that I visit Afghanistan, which I think is just as well. But I know for certain he's got some stories we're going to want to hear. And uh, a spouse, one of my classmates, told a story about being a volunteer working in South America, uh, providing vaccines for people that needed them in, in, among other places, Paraguay. And wouldn't you know it, in the backwoods of Paraguay, stumbled upon a palatial home inhabited by, well, let's just say someone who'd been formerly employed by the Third Reich. Anyway, I'm going to do my best to make, uh, make that happen in the future, and I think we will all uh, profit from uh, these tales, which uh, we're, going to, we're going to try and uh, kind of scoop the moth radio hour here at Radio Parallax. That's a very strange thing to go back to a, a place where you uh, spent so much time decades ago and look around and find almost none of it recognizable. It took me about 20 minutes of diligent searching to find my old lecture hall. But I finally succeeded in that endeavor. And in the nearby administrative offices and also adjoining cafe, which used to service we medical students, well, that, that, that's all gone. But a door was open, so I went in. Wandered around looking for our old study rooms, which are, which are long gone. And uh, not to get too theatrical about it, but it was, it was a bit like being a ghost haunting your old uh, environment. Now, luckily for my, my honey and I, there was a nice young man, Jason, working there, as, uh, I think, for, on his Ph.D., involving something to do with high-tech hearing aids. Gave us a mini-tour of the repurposed building. At one point, I stepped into a soundproof booth and had the door shut to, you know, be greeted with silence. I did mention to Jason that, you know, I really do need to get my ears checked. But alas, they were not providing that service on that day. I pointed out to where our, our lockers used to be and, and how it was. One day back uh, <laughs> decades ago, someone came in, some wag came in with a pencil and on certain lockers penned in D.I.M., which he explained stood for derelicts in medicine. The, uh, the name definitely stuck and was, was actually proudly embraced by a certain subset of the class. One of my classmates queried me these many years later during a, a nature walk on Saturday morning about the derelicts in medicine, saying, was the drug use really, was, was that really that profound? To which I replied, no, not generally. When I mentioned that question to another a fellow member of, of the DIM, Afterwards, he jumped in with, yes. 
But you know what? In honor of my, my, my former classmates, many of whom have been slogging away very hard in the world of medicine for these decades, more so uh, in a good many cases than your correspondent, I think I'm going to do some medicine on today's program. So to do this, I think I'm going to go to our, our good friend, New Scientist Magazine, and pull some items that uh, they have been talking about in the last uh, few months. Let's revisit a topic we talked about some years ago on this program, which would be bacteriophages. New Scientist reports on a new book out titled The Good Virus by someone named Tom Ireland. And it talks about how it is medical science faced with the problem of uh, more and more antibiotic resistance is looking for new ways to kill the bugs that attack us. And one way that has been proven to work is to take the viruses that attack the bacteria, grow them, and use them to kill what ails us. It is actually very solid science, but uh, was pretty much abandoned by most countries of the world, except perhaps uh, the Soviet Union and Georgia, because antibiotics were uh, cheap, or at least fairly cheap, much easier to use, and proven effective. It's a sad reality that uh, anyone who wanted to get phage therapy pretty much had to travel to Tbilisi, Georgia. And the fact is, many people who had chronic bacterial infections did make that journey in order to receive treatment. And this book review reports the, the tables on this matter got turned in 2016 when an epidemiologist named Stephanie Strathdee used phage therapy to save her husband's life. He'd had a bacterial infection that had resisted all known antibiotics. In desperation, Strathy recruited a team to develop a phage therapy after reading about the idea online. Now, people may wonder, and I'm sure you do, why it is phages are not being regularly prescribed. The difficulties are procedural. Phage therapies involve a cocktail of phages freshly sourced for each infection. You've got to basically grow bacteria find out what's killing the bacteria and then select for that anyway phage therapies pretty much preclude the idea of using a, the conventional controlled study in which the same treatment's given to many patients uh, this has led to a stigma attached to the very idea and, and meant that regulators have been very slow to allow this to be done medicine needs all the help that it can get and we hope that this uh, this goes you know full throttle forward there's an aside mentioned in, in uh, New Scientist about this book. They said a later section of it explores the role of phages in our ecosystems. And they noted that phages kill about half the bacteria which are in our oceans, which shows that uh, these biological entities uh, have a profound effect on our world. And, and must be the most widespread biological entities because viruses are not really alive. So I guess we'll call them a biological entity. Uh, phages have to be up there at the top of the list because, you know, most hosts have more than one thing attacking it, which means in this case, you know, astronomic numbers. Then there's the fact that the human Y chromosome has been fully sequenced finally. Peace notes that 20 years after the Human Genome Project was declared complete, huh, the Y chromosome has finally been sequenced. Now, most people have 22 pairs of chromosomes plus two sex chromosomes, either a pair of X's for women, or should we say biologic women, or one X and one Y chromosome for, I guess we'll call them biological men. Now, the Y chromosome is a bit of a runt. 
It has the smallest gene coding for proteins of, of any of the chromosomes. And because it normally has no paired chromosome with which it can swap pieces before sexual reproduction, it is described as especially likely to accumulate bits of repetitive DNA. Early methods of sequencing DNA involve breaking it up into small pieces, reading the code, and then reassembling the pieces. Doesn't work so well when you got a lot of repetitive DNA where the pieces are, you know, hard to put back together again. But with some ingenuity and diligence, they were finally able to do so. The good folks at the Genomic Medicine Laboratory in Connecticut. And I guess we can now say that the complete Y chromosome has 106 protein coding genes, in case you're keeping score. But it turns out that many of these genes are just copies of one gene called TSPY. And this is a lot of copies. Uh, people seem to range in between 23 and 39 copies of TSPY. But when you know it, we're not sure what that means. <laughs> the article, whether the repetitive DNA does anything important isn't clear. The scientist who studied this, Charles Lee, said, I believe there's a lot to learn about repetitive DNA, and we just don't understand it yet, and so we've just dismissed it as junk. And yes, because we did not know what most of the DNA in our bodies does, it was labeled junk DNA. We, we now are figuring out that it's not junk at all. Anyway, when they do figure out what TSPY does, we'll be the first to report it. Or maybe not the first, but we'll, we'll do our best to report it. And here's one thing that uh, I thought was really cool, an article from New Scientist from June 24th by Alice Klein titled Bugging Cancer. The subheadline notes that microbes have a natural affinity for tumors, which opens up incredible new ways to fight cancer. I think I'll just quote from the article, which starts out, Salmonella bacteria are normally associated with violent food poisonings. But in 2019, Irit Balbol, a 71-year-old Canadian, volunteered to drink a liquid containing 1 billion live Salmonella typhimurium bacteria. It was a last resort against her pancreatic cancer, which had spread to other organs and had given her just months to live. These bacteria had been genetically engineered to trigger an immune attack on her cancer cells while being less toxic than regular salmonella for the rest of the body. The piece notes it may sound strange to use bacteria to treat cancer, but the approach does harken back to the late 1800s when William Coley, a New York surgeon, began injecting streptococcus bacteria into the inoperable tumors of some of his patients, resulting in regressions he described as nothing short of marvelous. Despite this promise, the approach fell out of favor, probably due in no small part to the fact that uh, some of his patients died from the treatment, but the ones that didn't saw sometimes improvement in their cancers. Here's the part that's going to surprise a lot of people in healthcare. It is now clear that many bacteria are naturally attracted to tumors, which are home to a rich microbial ecosystem. This tumor microbiome can influence how cancer progresses and responds to treatment. A clear appreciation of the system is leading to the development of new microbial medicines to treat cancer, some of which are now in clinical trials. This is actually a pretty new idea, one that tumors are teeming with microbes. It only came to the fore in 2020 when Ilana Litvayatin at the Weizmann Institute of Science in Israel and colleagues analyzed bacteria in more than 1,000 human tumor samples. Using genetic sequencing, they identified bacteria in all eight tumor types they studied, which were breast, brain, lung, skin, bone, ovary, pancreas, and colon. Said Litvayan, it made us raise our eyebrows and say, hey, what are they doing there? 
And even more surprising, it turned out that each tumor type had its own distinct microbial signature. And when you know it, last year they found fungi in tumors also. In fact, in all eight types that had previously tested positive for bacteria. So the strategy here is that you can target the bacteria or reprogram bacteria that have an affinity for tumors, put them into the cancer cells or the cluster of cancer cells and wake up the immune system to say, hey, 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 something's going on here. You better attack. And in fact, taking a look back at what uh, Dr. Coley did in the late 1800s, current scientists are saying, well, uh, they're not sure how that worked, but most likely the streptococcus bacteria that he injected into his patient's tumors made them more visible to their immune systems. Although small amounts of bacteria can hide in tumors because of cancer's immune-evading mechanisms, injecting larger doses of them into tumors may be enough to trigger alarm bells so the immune system launches an assault on the cancer cells that the bacteria are living in. This is fascinating stuff. And yes, the next step is to genetically engineer organisms that uh, would have an affinity for tumors and along the way express a protein that wakes up the immune system. The Israeli researchers have done this. They took salmonella and made it express a protein called interleukin-2, which activates the immune system. The salmonella goes directly into the tumor, and it brings along the interleukin-2 so that the whole body is not exposed to the interleukin-2, just the tumor. Very promising stuff, and we hope to report more on that in the months to come. And speaking of inflammation, I'd like to close out with an article about what's described as your body's secret superhighway, better known to you and me as the vagus nerve. Now, this nerve comes right out of our brain and goes down to the rest of the body and is well known for doing a lot of different things. The piece by Grace Wade in New Scientist notes that it helps regulate everything from the movement of food through our intestines to the steady beating of our heart. The recent study shows that it does a lot more than we ever realized, not only monitoring organ functions, but helping discern facial expressions and even regulating mood. Most importantly, scientists are starting to understand how it governs inflammation. Described as the immune response that runs rampant in conditions ranging from heart disease to Parkinson's. Already, electrical devices called vagus nerve stimulators are used to treat epilepsy, also depression, also migraines, also obesity. But these are limited by our rudimentary understanding of the nerve's complex structure, which they're now working to figure out. This regulating of inflammation has really got people excited. Uh, Peace notes that the role the vagus nerve plays in controlling inflammation was first hinted at in the 1990s when Kevin Tracy, now at the Feinstein Institute of Medical Research and colleagues, developed an anti-inflammatory drug to block production of proteins called cytokines, which spur our body's immune response to infection or illness. In modest amounts, cytokines and the ensuing inflammation fend off foreign pathogens and heal injuries. But if you have too much of them, it has the opposite effect. It damages tissues and potentially causes chronic illness or even organ failure. In this case, when researchers injected this drug they developed into the brains of rats who had experienced stroke from bacterial infections, they hoped it would dampen the inflammation in the brain. To their surprise, the effect extended throughout the rodents' whole bodies. If you give drugs orally or intravenously, you you might expect widespread effects, but the researchers weren't anticipating this after they injected medication directly into the brain, said researcher Kevin Tracy. For months, we agonized over what the mechanism could be. Eventually, we tried severing the animal's vagus nerve. When we did that, the drug in the brain no longer turned off inflammation in the rest of the body. 
Tracy dubbed the vagus nerve's ability to mediate inflammation the inflammatory reflex. Pretty exciting stuff with a major advantage. Anti-inflammatory medications often severely suppress immune function, leaving people vulnerable to infection. Not so with this approach. The vagus nerve stimulation causes white blood cells to shut down cytokine production enough to avoid runaway inflammation, but not so much that our immune system is disarmed completely. I've got a feeling this research is going to bear some very, very important fruit. Now, I don't know about you, dear listener, but I do find a lot of this stuff pretty earth-shaking. But I really feel that, in fairness, I should balance it off with some things that are, well, just a little more frivolous. For example, it is being reported that paleogenomics, which involves looking at the genomes of things that lived a long time ago, has produced this startling headline, Ertzi, the Iceman, may have been bald. Yes, most people have read about this uh, corpse that emerged from a glacier in Austria that, uh, that belonged to a man that died in the glacier 5,300 years ago. His mummified body has taught us quite a bit about uh, what his living conditions were. Well, among other things, it turns out that the, the genome, which had been previously analyzed, indicated that he had darker skin than any people with predominantly European ancestry today have. And doggone it, looks like it may have been bald. Now, what the significance of this finding is, well, I, I don't know. I know he is thought to have been a hunter-gatherer, and uh, he had uh, equipment on him to start fires, and I think a walking stick and a few other things, uh, but, but alas, apparently not a 5,300-year-old toupee. Here's another item I don't really know what to make of. The headline is, Blackbirds go to sleep earlier when they feel ill. The piece notes, if blackbirds feel sick, they go to bed earlier, much like people do. And no, I'm not sure what they're going to do with that finding, um, to which I just say, well, okay. And uh, you, you might be ple- <laughs> pleased to note that the balm that was used while mummifying an ancient Egyptian noblewoman who died 3,500 years ago, well... Scientists using mass spectrometry, they think, have been able to recreate the aroma. They, they say that the balm smells like beeswax, bitumen, plant oil, and tree resin. This comes from the Max Planck Institute of Geoanthropology in Germany. This allows us to segue into our friend Donald Rose's, one of his favorite jokes, which was that paleontologists have recently discovered Chanel Number no. 1. Now, here's a speculation I've never lost any sleep over. I don't know about your dear listener, but um, people who like to ponder such things have raised the possibility that aliens living on low-oxygen worlds may never have discovered fire. Now, the story is to have really active combustion, you need oxygen levels of about 18%. And in some of these worlds, it, it may be low. It may, emphasize, may be lower than that. And uh, yeah, maybe, I don't know what else we can say about this, except that uh, the, peop- the aliens on that world have definitely never visited the Earth in flying saucers. <laughs> Let's face it, if you, if you can't get around to mastering a marshmallow roast, then it's a sure bet that interstellar travel's going to be out. And finally, although some probably said it could never be done, but the truth is researchers using CRISPR gene editing have now edited yeast which can make rice wine, which reportedly tastes like bananas. 
Yeah, apparently some folks at the University of Illinois Champaign-Urbana with a lot of spare time on their hands turned their attention to the genome of the yeast. And they engineered it to make more molecules called esters and then produce a wine that had a banana-like flavor. Radio Parallax is so far unable to confirm whether or not the people at Mondavi are pursuing this. We have no bananas today. We've got string beans and onions and big juicy lemons and all kinds of fruit and say. All right, I think we have seldom needed to take a short break more than right at this moment. So let's do that. Listening to Radio Parallax, I'm Douglas Everett. We have no bananas. We have no bananas today. There's a fruit man on our street whose name is Mr. Pete. And he keeps good things to eat, but you should hear him speak. When you ask him anything, he never answers no. He just yeses you to death and then he takes your dough. We no got the banana.